Shelley Miscavige. She has not appeared in public since 2005. Where's Shelly and what happened? Where is Shelly? We're looking at like 17 years of a person just missing. Shelly Miscavige was given into the sole care of L. Ron Hubbard by her parents when she was 12. This is where Shelly is believed to be being held captive. Do you believe that Shelly Miscavige is a threat today? Oh, absolutely. She's seen it all. She's been by his side the whole time. Welcome back to the channel. I'm your host for today, Claire Headley, and this is my next episode in this series, Where is Shelley Miscavige, in which we have been delving deep into who is Shelley Miscavige and how is it possible in today's world that this woman has not been seen publicly in 18 years and has been, for all intents and purposes, vanished by her husband, David Miscavige, who's the leader of Scientology. My guest for today and back for part three is my dear friend, Karen Schles-Presley. Welcome back, Karen. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me back. My We're, pleasure. We've had a good time on the part one and part two, haven't we? Oh, we sure have. I have <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed our talks. It's been very eye-opening and it's just been so wonderful to have this in-depth conversation with you because I don't think we've ever talked this much. Never. Ever. <laughs> Never. <laughs> I was, I was, we were together on the int base, but like you explained the other day, when is there time to really get to know people? Yes. And, and, then, and in fact, it's frowned upon to get to know people. <laughs> yeah. Like, why would you be sitting idle? Yes. How could you, how could you stand there wasting time building a relationship, getting to know somebody when you should be producing and getting your stats up. But yes, I did get to know you just very briefly when we were at the flag land base during the whole that uniform project that we've discussed in part two. And I remember talking with you really briefly. I remember thinking, gosh, I really like her. I'd like to know her better at the end base when we get back. But that never happened. So yes. Anyway, here we are. Yes, we're, we're making up for it now out here in the free world, and we're not going to get in trouble for fraternizing or anything else. <laughs> you know, the, the, very interesting, we're talking about that. I, I wasn't even going to bring this up, but when you think about it, just think how they had no idea that those of us who met at the Int Base and who managed to come to our senses and escape that we would ever get together out in the real world and find common denominators because what brought us together there was just being in the Sea Org. Yes. Uh, and now look at what's what our common denominator is, wanting to expose the abuses of Scientology. Yes. No, and, 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 and help and other I, people. Yeah, no. And I'd go so far as to say that Scientology was banking on being able to prevent us from reconnecting outside of Scientology. And in fact, that's what one of the early things that made my husband Mark such a huge target is because he was just bringing people together. Like we had a an SP Christmas party all the way back in, I think it was December 2006. We 
you know, brought all these people, some of whom we'd never, we hadn't met previously, but who had been in Scientology and it was amazing. And it's just, you know, those, those um, initial roots have just grown into this wonderful and amazing community of people. And I think it's fair to say that we all learn from each other. We all are um, helping on our own recovery path by having these conversations and comparing notes. I completely agree. Oh my God, that was a very rich statement. We could probably talk for hours on that topic, (laughs) but it does bring up something that I've been wanting to say. I've been kind of looking for an opportunity to mention this, but um, I have to bring up something that happened many years ago. Here we are in 2023 talking about this now, but when Mark, I, I escaped in 1998 and Mark escaped what year? 2005. 2005. And you also escaped 2005, but a few months after Mark, correct? Three weeks after him. Yes. Three weeks. Sorry. Yes. Um, Okay. So 2005. So I got a Mark, your husband, Mark reached out to me when, after he escaped, I, you may have been out at that point. I'm not sure, but he reached out to me and, um, he reached out to me and he invited me to something. It was a get together. I think it had to do with Jason Begay. Yes. Uh, Okay. Uh, There was going to be a get together of people who had escaped the int base and Mark seemed to be the organizer of it. And yes. And, and I, and I did not attend. Um, I was living in Atlanta at the time and it wasn't just the plane flight that kept me from attending. I just want to say this. I've been wanting to tell Mark this all these years and to you as well. But back then, 2005-ish, I was still, um, I did not know who, when people came out of Scientology, especially from the ant base, I did not know who was a spy, mm-hmm. a counter spy, um, trying to plant themselves in my life. Um, I, I, I didn't know. I, my sensors were way off. I, I just, I couldn't distinguish, you know, who was truthful, who was not mm-hmm. many other people reached out to me. John Horowitz called me, Nancy Maney contacted me. Um, a woman who worked for the Lisa McPherson trust friend of Tori Christman. I can't think of her name, but she was a partner to Bob Minton for a while. Oh, Stacy Vaughn. Stacy Vaughn Brooks, right? Yes. A lot of different people reached out to me um, when they got out, and I had been out a few years. But like I said, I made a choice to kind of cut myself off from people because I I was trying so desperately to build a new life, and I didn't know who I could trust or who I could not trust. And because Scientology has intelligence and counterintelligence, I didn't know who was doing what. Yep. And so I, I really blew it in terms of um, Mark's friendly gestures. And I've always wanted to tell Mark that, that I really blew it. I apologize. Oh, you do not need to apologize at all. We, of of anybody, we completely understand what you just described. 
And we've had the same thing. And so absolutely, please don't apologize. I guarantee you, Mark has no hard feelings. There are many people, who, you know, and I, I think that this, this culture, this feeling that you were experiencing, just speaking in my own opinion, is also engendered and encouraged specifically and exactly by mm -hmm. Office of Special Affairs, by Scientology, because right. they want... They want to generate that mistrust, the, right. you know, undercurrents of information. They don't want us to be a strong community, which is what we are becoming. <laughs> <laughs> so true. And, you know, it's taken us however long it's taken ourselves to, to get through that and to be able to be around other people and not I mean, maybe we maybe we feel guarded to some extent, but I think it's become easier to to trust ex members because we've learned so much now from each other. Completely, um, you know, a lot of us have been on the aftermath. A lot of us have written books. A lot of us have websites and Facebook groups, and you now know kind of who stands on what position, um, and. Uh, Anyway, I'm really glad for the the way this community has has grown. And and I'm I'm just really happy to be a part of it, but I just had to get my words out about Mark. I didn't mean to be an arrogant jerk or anything like that. You were not <laughs> at all. At but I all. but see the thing is is I regret it because had I had I um attended and hung out with you guys, I I could have built some friendships starting back in 2005. You know? True, but you so. know, it's it's never too late. We all come, we humans come very well equipped with those <laughs> elephant sized rear view mirrors. But, and so we have no control over that. But what we do have is the day in front of us and, and conversations like these. And, you know, it's never too late. <laughs> See, I love that. That's great, Claire. Thank you for saying that. Of course. Awesome. Of course. I, I feel the exact same way. And um, so I, all right, now that we, now that I was able to get that out of the way, I want to make a correction about something I said, um, because I, I've noticed that the people who are watching this are paying very close attention to a lot of our, a lot of the details in our stories. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate and respect that and how good it makes me feel about, you know, investing some time and doing the show because people are really listening and they're paying attention to details. So for that reason, I want to correct something that I said because people are paying attention. And when I was talking about, I think it was in part one where I quoted uh, from my book and I quoted from the TV show, The House of Cards. Remember when I said I do. Um, we uh, we are rationalizing the obscene into the palatable. Yes. Okay. I attributed that statement to the role of Robin Wright, who played the president's wife. She's not the one that actually said that. Um, the character who said it was Heather Dunbar, who in the show The House of Cards, uh, she played the role of attorney general. Okay. And she was speaking to. Uh, Kevin Spacey, who played the president, um, uh, Francis Underwood. And, um, and he, spe she specifically said to him, is this how you live with yourself? 
by rationalizing the obscene into the palatable. Oh, wow. And so I still, I mean, even my correction is it was said by Heather Dunbar, uh, not the president's wife, but it still applies to what the context that we used it in, which was how Shelley's role as COB assistant is very much doing that. Is this how she lives with herself? Right. By rationalizing the obscene into the palatable. So it definitely still applies. I just wanted to make that correction. Interesting. I, yeah. I appreciate you doing that. And as long as we're on filling in holes and gaps, I, I wanted to add one more comment too. So in part two, we were talking about, you'd asked me um, for what um, people in religious technology center would, would uh, model after. Right. And we talked about the Potter's movie, no, no way out with no Kevin out. Costner. Right. The second movie I, I looked it up. Uh, was Internal Affairs with Richard Gere, which oh. I do not like that movie. And unfortunately, I had to watch it so many times that now that role that Richard Gere plays in that movie has translated to a just a distaste towards him. And it's nothing personal at all. I just saw that movie too many times and he is not a good guy in it. So... <laughs> I get it. Uh, I, I can totally understand why you would feel that way about him as an actor, Rep representing that role like he did. And you were enforced to watch it and absorb it and probably model it. Correct? Right. Yeah. Well, I wanted to bring up something similar that I did not bring up when we were talking about films. And by the way, you commented after our talk the other day of how much Shelley and Dave used films as remember we were talking about art series eight as examples of models of how to pattern your, your design or your thoughts or your, or your behavior or something after something. Yes. Dave would pick films for you to watch. Shelley picked the English patient for me to watch, to get her concept for CLB's office movies. When I first, in, in was it part one or part two, I was talking about being on the post of International Management Public Relations Officer, IMPR. And when I first got on that post, Dave, SCOB, wrote me a, a memo and said, um, for your art series eight for your post, I want you to watch the film, The American President. Yes. Starring Michael J. Fox. So, you know, I got The American President and I went and watched it and I watched it. I probably watched it three times to try to figure out what is he seeing in this film that should be my model for IMPR. I thought, wow, this, what I got from that is several things. And I just want to bring it up now. Is that Michael J. Fox? Have you seen that movie? I have not. No. Okay. So <laughs> he is um, he is the 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 American president's PR, sort of like a press secretary type, but it's an internal office job, and he's um, scheduling for the president, and he's running the meetings, and he's fielding phone calls, and 
fielding messages and letters and fielding requests for meetings and all kinds of stuff. And he's telling the president what to accept and what not to accept, what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say. And I thought, okay, as I am PR, I wouldn't be doing this, any of this for Dave. Right. Uh, I would be doing it for international management, which at the time was EDNT and all the exec ints. But international management at the time was also, you know, they all blended together as int management execs, right. which, in, which included RTC, which I think is so interesting because, as you pointed out the other day, RTC is a policing group and was technically not part of management, but he constantly functioned as management because he was constantly bypassing any executive that he had on on post and constantly talking about how he was doing their jobs. Right, completely. So if the IRS or anybody else ever wanted to know, you know, if anybody wanted any proof of whether he was involved in the minutia of management, it would be so easy to prove that. Completely. Um, Anybody could watch any of our videos and glean that information from it. But can you imagine me running around like Michael J. Fox did and telling Edient (laughs) what to accept, what not to accept, what to talk about, what not to talk about? Um, You know, maybe if I was reading his mail or uh, any of that. So that was like an orientation for me to my post. Interesting. So that was probably more confusing than clarifying though, huh? You hit the nail on the head. (laughs) And I can't, I can't help but wonder, (laughs) you know, I've already explained to him being an SP so many times. There he was, he brought me on that post and now he's confusing the daylights out of me. Right. (laughs) You're like, sorry. No, no. I was just going to say like, um, David Miscavige, is your point that you are management and I'm your public relations officer? Or if that's not your point, then what is your point? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you have an example of an evil purpose right there. Yeah. Yeah. Set me, bring, bring me on the post, set me up for failure. Right. And then the book that I was told to read was a very classic public relations book. Uh, I can't think of the name of it now, but I did get, I was given a copy of it and it didn't at all relate to the work that we did within exec strata. I I mean, at all. So then you have to read the LRHPR uh, public relations series to try to get the Hattie material and some of that related, but I mean, it was it was a setup for chaos yeah. and, and confusion, but that just ties in with everything else we've been talking about and, and all that. So. Absolutely. And back to the, the, the topic of the films that the, the movies that we were talking about and how David Miscavige would very often, often have us watch movies to then pattern off that and mimic that. From from the many Hubbard advices and directives that I read, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this too, that was Hubbard's intention too. That was the reason, for example, 
where he made the training films uh, where he said, we're just going to show people this is what you do. And then they'll just mirror that as, you know, and exactly copy that. And, and so Hubbard did the exact same thing in terms of expecting people to just uh, watch a film and then copy that exactly, probably in lieu of real education or certainly um, as a means of demeaning real world education and focusing only on do what we tell you to do in Scientology and copy what we tell you to do. Wow, that's a good point. Isn't that a good point? Because then a student, if they're training to be an auditor, is supposed to make a connection between what they see in the film and what they're reading in the course pack, the HCOBs, and then doing all the training drills. Uh, in, a, in so many cases, they were like this. Right. <laughs> saying one thing and doing another. Yes, like completely. Utter, utter confusion and... I don't know if you ever watched uh, Miss Bris- Mitch Brisker's. Uh, he was interviewed by Chris Shelton after Mitch left, and Mitch started speaking out and revealing what he went through at the in-base shooting the tech films. And he was, uh, you're talking about, you know, using a film to emulate the right way to do it. And he talked about how <laughs> this is awful uh, because Dan Kuhn is my friend. Yes. But but Dan Kuhn was the person who did TRs in the film called Pro TRs. Yes, he played wasn't his name Joe Howard in the film? I I don't remember <laughs> that, but um and, and I'm pretty I'm pretty sure. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I've seen that film probably mm, I don't know. 500 times conservatively. <laughs> uh, so I'm pretty, pretty darn sure, but it has been a minute. <laughs> but if you ever get a chance, <coughs> excuse me, um, listen to Mitch's commentary on the pro TRs and Dan Coons TRs. Okay. And how it had to be corrected because oh. And how it had to be corrected, where that film was held up as the way to do TRs. And Mitch talks about how grueling it was to undo that and the and what Hubbard allowed in the film. As right, the way, because the way that to film was directed by L. Ron Hubbard. Okay, so this is a little off topic, but this <laughs> struck me the other day. And so I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh and, and get your thoughts on this. So it occurred to me, I remember as a, as a child at St. Hill, um, you know, being in the, in the training, training areas and studying, you know, for example, I did the, um, Hubbard qualified Scientologist course. Oh, I did too. Yeah. And it was in a green, yeah, it was in a green binder back then. Mm -hmm. And there were all different colors of, um, directives, in that binder. So for example, there were um, memos from the board of directors and this person and that person. It wasn't, it wasn't just as it later became of purely green on white is Hubbard policies, red on white is Hubbard technical bulletins, and that's it. And then blue on white is the flag orders uh, that relate to pertain or, you know, pertain to 
C, uh, members of the Sea Organization. So back in this, uh, I was thinking about this and thinking, well, th so there were issues from other people than Hubbard who were clearly in positions of power and had authority to send out, um, you know, policies. And this was when Hubbard was still alive. So it seems impossible to me that he didn't know that this was going on. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then at a certain point, and I think it was right before or after Hubbard died, I can't remember because, uh, 1985, I was 10 years old. So forgive me if my memory is a little skewed. <laughs> However, I do remember that all those other um, directives were canceled and removed. And then the, the um, training packages, the binders that we would be given to study only had policy letters, the only strictly and only the Hubbard writings at this point. And it just occurred to me that, so now the in the public eye, it's only Hubbard, then Hubbard dies and David Miscavige carefully removes and um, maneuvers himself into complete and utter power, undermines and removes any other top executives who worked closely with Hubbard, now including, by the way, Shelley Miscavige, mm. because Shelley worked with Hubbard for many, many years. On the, starting from the Apollo. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. So any key person in any position of authority or power was then removed. David Miscavige lever leverages himself into complete authoritarian, totalitarian control mm -hmm. over all of Scientology and then begins revising everything. So, you know, the whole golden age of tech transformed what a training course looks like in Scientology. But hold on, let's pause for a moment because Hubbard did the training films and said what those things should look like. So is David Miscavige saying that Hubbard was wrong and that this all needs to be redone because it wasn't good enough? Mm. Food for thought. <laughs> Food for thought. Very interesting connection you're making there. Very interesting. Also interesting, you brought up Golden Age of Tech. Um, and, and here we are. Well, Mitch was sent to the base, hired at the base to redo all the films that LRH did. Wow. So your question is a very, uh, a very good question. What was the motive? Yeah. And, and the golden age of tech thing, I remember when that came out uh, for, for anyone who doesn't know, that was uh, David Miscavige's strategy to improve auditing and make it more perfect uh, according to his techniques. And he came up with, you know, the uh, different tools that people use to do training drills and I don't want to get into all that, except I only want to bring up one thing. When he implemented the golden age of tech, we were commanded to support it and never say a critical word about it, never question it, never have counterintention against it, never do anything to get it implemented anywhere on the threat of being sent to the art, to the rehabilitation project force. Yes, that was the authoritarian, totalitarian management style of David Miscavige playing out. 
Don't question his authority. Don't question anything he's doing. Don't question the drills. Don't question the policy. Don't question any of the tech, the new, revised, whatever, um, that was no longer Hubbard Scientology. Right. Don't question it, because if you do, you're going to the RPF. Right. And that's what we were told at the end base. Do you know whether people in lower levels of Scientology were told that as well? Yes, they definitely were. Okay. They absolutely were. If anybody, like for example, so I was in Clearwater, Florida from March 1996 until January 1997. And I was there as a represent training to be an RTC representative. Right. Well, one of the very first tasks that we as the RTC reps in training were to do was to oversee all the outer org trainees who were at flag in preparation for the launch of the golden age of tech. Okay. And so we were um, supervising getting all these outer org trainees through all of their, you know, through the metering course, for example, which was a new course created by David Miscavige that, um, you know, there had, there had been a metering course before, but it was completely different and it was really fast and nobody really ever even did it. Uh, it was just for very specific purposes uh, because the auditor training previously counted as learning how to use the e-meter. So anyway, that's off topic. But the point being that we were, we as Religious Technology Center representatives were there at, at FLAG in Clearwater for, and, and for two, two to three months. So from March until May. So yeah, from March until May. Uh, 1996, May 1996 was the, w was when the golden age of tech launched at the May 9th event, the Dianetics event. Um, and, and all we were doing was getting all the, the outer org trainees through their training to be ready so that when that event happened, they would all go back to their organizations and implement the golden age of tech. So anybody that asked any questions or showed any disagreements or anything was absolutely under the same threat of being assigned to the rehabilitation project force. Yes. For, and for anybody who doesn't know the rehabilitation project force, the RPF is Scientology's version of a prison camp. Yeah. With, so. with the added, um, cherry on top of not only prison camp, but uh, mental reprogramming. Like it's supposed to, you know, essentially like scrub your programming if you were a computer and reinstall all your software so that you're only going to do Scientology's bidding unquestioningly, unwaveringly, and always with a smile on your face and a dedicated glare in your eye. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it, Claire. That's exactly right. Well, you're, you're reminding me of a story I was going to tell. Um, I was going to do it later, but maybe I'll do it now that relates to the RPF, getting in trouble, questioning policy, questioning David Miscavige. And the first time I blew from the Sea Org. Sounds so good to me. I have, a, I, you know, we're in the, we're a Shelley series and I have, Stories and questions about Shelley, but I'm going to save those because right now what we're talking about ties into the story I was going to tell. Okay. Okay. So um, somewhere in the early 90s when I was at at Golden Air Productions, the Int Base, uh, 
Um, I worked in the uh, cine division, which is cinema. We were the film crew. And um, there was a time when it just, the our cine division, the crew were constantly in trouble. We couldn't complete good shots. We couldn't get enough shots in a day. And of course, David Miscavige, who is COB RTC, who never micromanages anything, uh, was watching the rushes every single day, looking at every single shot that our crew shot. And he would flunk most of the shots and he would get so exasperated that one day he, at an int-based staff meeting on a Saturday night, I think it was, um, he made an announcement that he was so tired of having Cine's job all over his plate and he was doing their jobs, you know, watching rushes, doing the editing, trying to salvage shots, telling him how to shoot the lighting, whatever. That he decided that Cine was just a complete out ethics scumbag of people that needed to be shit canned in, in, in essence, um, taken off post. And he took our entire division, which was about 60 people, off post to do full-time renovations to rebuild the mess hall, which at the time was called MCI, Massacre Canyon Inn. Yeah. And basically he needed to get that job done because it had all kinds of uh, structural issues. It was an old building. It had leaks. It had all kinds of stuff going on. So in a, in, instead of hiring, you know, a, a contractor to, to do this, he just takes Cine off, off post. And um, this is a, what's that word? Musical chairs. Yes. Where he, he takes people off post and moves them around to suit his purposes. Uh, and that's, he did that routinely. But so I was the victim of one or the, we're not supposed to call ourselves victims. I you was, can call yourself whatever you'd like. <laughs> so I was in the city division at that time. So he, he takes us all off post and we're full time demo demo doing demolition on MCI and rebuilding it. Well, we were doing this for days on end and in many cases, not getting any sleep while yeah. doing it. I'm sorry. I just lost a, a headphone. Oh, that's okay. Can you, you still hear? Can yep. you still hear me? Okay. So we were off uh, weeks doing this around the clock, by the way. We weren't even allowed to go home to sleep and shower for days on end. It was so inhumane yeah. how we how we were treated. And a lot of people slept on floors uh, under their desks where they used to work. Some of them slept in MCI. Um, anyway, it was it was horrendous. We were talk about being treated as slave labor. That's right. exactly what we were. That's all we were was slave labor. So in the middle of this, this this was going on for weeks. Um, I got sick. I got flu symptoms, and I knew I had a fever. I had chills and body aches and. Uh, you know, just general, like it felt like the flu. I felt horrible. And I'm sure other people felt bad too, but we were uh, because of the sleep deprivation. But 
then I also had these other things and a fever. And so one night about nine o'clock, I walked myself out of MCI. And um, I think I told one person or something that I was going to go up to isolation to see if I could see the nurse. We had a medical officer, a nurse. Yeah, which which let's not forget, she was not a nurse and not qualified to be doing anything medical, but that was her title. <laughs> yes, um, she was French. I can't think of her name. Uh, Martine. Ma- Martine. So Martine wa- Collin, it just came to me. Martine, Martine Collin. So I walked from MCI, which is on the south side of Highway 79. The property was divided by Highway 79. The south side had MCI and Cine Division and the shoot, uh, the gym where we shot shots at the time and estates. So to get to the other side, you walk under the tunnel and then across the property to a place called the Old old Gilman's House, I think. Old Greenskeeper's House, O-G-H. Oh, no, it was Old Gilman's House. At least I knew it as Old Gilman's House. Maybe there was alternate names. That was not uncommon. Okay. (laughs) So it was about 9 o'clock, pitch dark, and I went up to O-G-H, and I I, uh, looked around in the women's section and just laid on a bed, hoping that someone would come around to do rounds to check on people who were sick. Well, um, I was lying there for maybe about two hours and nobody had come. I felt terrible. My, I think my fever had gotten worse. Um, but around, I'm guessing it might have been 11 o'clock, a security guard walked into where I was lying down and he said, you need to get up and get back to work. I said, what do you mean? I am so sick. And he said, COCMO said that you abandoned your team in MCI and you need to get back to your post. Well, at that time, the CEO was Biddy Miscavige and she had the ability to be pretty rough when she wanted to. But she said, I was demonstrating counterintention to COB's orders to get MCI rebuilt. Okay. Being accused of this after working there for three weeks, morning, noon, and night, and many, many all-nighters, was a little bit on the unjust side. Absolutely, especially when you're (laughs) sick and you did the right thing of reporting to isolation, which is, that's that's absolutely what you're supposed to do. It's actually covered in LRH policy um, to, to do that as well. So. So isolation probably made you sicker, but that's a different topic altogether. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes, it is. So he shags me out of there and I'm like, you know, I'm a little bit dizzy, actually. I don't know what my temperature was. So because we were on the north side of the property, the audio building where my then husband Peter worked is where we usually parked our car. And so I remember, um, that I remembered where we parked the car in relation to OGH. So as I'm trying to get back down to MCI, I was going to try to swing in to find our car. And I thought maybe I could, um, maybe no one will notice. I just really desperately needed to rest because I felt so terrible at that time. So I did find our car and I sat in the front passenger seat, shut the door, and put my head back. And 
probably 10 minutes later, a flashlight is shining in my face and it's a security guard again. And he just yelled at me and told me, you're just so much CI, you need to get back to your post and, and all that. And I just, I was out of it. I, I don't know what my temperature was, but I remember after he did that to me, I just kind of lost it. I, I remember that I started to pass out and I saw black and white spots and I put my head on the dash and I think I passed out. Wow. And when I, when I awoke, he was already gone, but I realized that I had just had a really bad moment. I don't know if that was some kind of a mental break or whether it was fever, just fever. But I walked back to MCI and I was, I could barely stand up. I felt so terrible. And all I got was, of course, you know, shit, criticism for abandoning my team. And it was pretty horrendous. But long story short with that. So we all stayed on the renos for weeks and weeks and weeks. I don't know how long we were there. But we finally finished the MCI building. And um, after we completed the renovations, COB returned us to our posts in Cine. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? All of a sudden now we were capable of going back to work. Yeah. And he said, well, you should have learned to work as a team by now. So he assumed we were going to do much better. So he puts us back on post. And when we get back on post, I find out that the LRH policy that says that staff are entitled to two and a half hours of study time every day, COB was waiving that. That no longer applied to CINE because he said that there was uh, a CINE advice, an LRH advice for CINE, that maybe they shouldn't take study time until every two weeks after completing a film. Hmm. Well, the way this was conveyed to us was through Ted Horner, who at the time was the CEO of the Commodore's Messenger or Gold, not CMO Int, but CMO Gold. Yes. So Ted Horner supervised the Cine crew a lot. Um, and so he's the one that issued an order that we were back on post, but we were not going to have study time until we finished shooting a film. Well, I was irate with that because to me, one of the reasons I joined the Sea Org was because I loved at the time or prior to that studying Scientology. I was all about the education of it. Yep. And learning it. And when he said that we couldn't go to study until the crew finished films, I felt so robbed and I was really pissed. And I thought, this is really squirrely. You know, HCO, I mean, LRH says what he says in the two and a half hours of study time. So I went over this issue with my senior, who was the art director at the time, Jennifer Demers Cook. Yes. And um, I, I told her about this. I said, Jennifer, I, I have to query this like an orders query. And because it seems to me to be off policy. And she said, that sounds right to me. So she and I discussed it and I ended up, I did write an orders query to Ted Horner, but I also wrote a knowledge report. And I said that, you know, 
staff are entitled, LRH policy says we're entitled to two and a half hours a day of study time. And I wrote the KR and I sent it uh, on the channels. And I didn't know that when you write a KR and, it, and it's going to ethics gold, I wasn't aware that RTC was copied on these KRs or I don't know how the KR landed with COB. I don't know. So you, so you didn't copy him on it? No. Oh, okay. Because it was, it was common for people to write knowledge reports, but they would add CCs to send okay. copies of it to whoever they wanted. Um, I did copy Ted Horner, COCMO Gold. I did copy him because it related to his order. Yeah. Uh, I sent it to Ethics Gold. I don't think I copied COB, but in any case, um, <laughs> I wrote a, I wrote a pages about this in my book of what happened because the consequence of my writing this knowledge report unfolded. I quoted my book. It unfolded a whole new chapter in my Sea Org career. Oh my God. Writing, writing this KR. So I'm going to read just a quick piece from my, and this all relates to applying policy, believing that LRH wrote policy, that we should all follow policy, et cetera. But I didn't know the politics of the base where you don't dare query uh, a senior executive like COCMO Gold. Um, who was I to know that he got the order from COB? Right. And how yes. was I to know? How was I to know that Tom Cruise recommended to COB that we not go to study until we finished films? Wow, really? I, That's I found, where it came from. Well, I found that out much after the fact. Yeah. Um, yes, but it is where it came from. Tom yeah, Cruise. And and, and yeah, and sorry, just to just to comment too, you were following a Hubbard policy as well, even with orders querying, because there is a Hubbard policy that says if you receive an order that you don't agree with or you feel it gives the whole procedure of exactly how you go about rectifying that, and that's what you were following. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that I was doing the right thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I didn't know the politics of the base. Yeah. Far be it for me to know that. I was just a peon in, in gold at the time. And that's why I wanted to get the hell out of gold. Yeah. Okay. So uh, so now I'm going to read this. Uh, I, I write about it briefly. It's just worth reading because it's pretty descriptive. Yes. And since people want to know what it was like to get in trouble and how did you deal with it, I thought that this would really relate to how I got in trouble by applying LRH policy. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Page 187. <laughs> My self-defense using LRH policy to report an off-policy action backfired. I thought Ted Horner had arbitrarily decided that we would only study after we finished a film. I later learned this was Miss Gavage's ruling that came out in Ted Horner's name and even later learned that Tom Cruise gave Miscavige this idea. My report went viral. The anger of the gods descended on Cine and me when at least four four-stripe captains raged on motorcycles down to my office in the lower lodges. A swarm of RTC investigators filled the room, 
slamming clipboards on desks, questioning staff about why the Cine Division fostered unethical and unproductive behavior in general. My senior Jennifer, the art director, was questioned for being blind to my criminal acts and not putting in my ethics that would have prevented me from writing this KR. Jennifer didn't mention to anyone that just an hour before writing the report, me writing the report, she had proofread the report I wrote on our office computer and encouraged me to send it. (laughs) So typical. (laughs) she, She felt I was applying KSW, keeping Scientology working. I was so terrified by the amount of force applied by the executives that I flipped into a theedy weedy I'm innocent mode, hoping I would not be drawn and quartered. A few hours later, the execs summoned an emergency muster of all gold crew, mm-hmm. about 400 staff. We fell into formation of at least 20 rows of 20 staff, doodly standing at military attention, feet together, arms hanging rigid down our sides, heads facing forward. Flanked by Miscavige's army of RTC supporters, COB wielded his verbal sledgehammer that had the power to electrify us as his audience. Profanity spewed from his mouth like I had never before heard, even from my dad, who had talked soldier trash after the war. DM's chest swelled while his reddened face quivered with rage as though he was facing an assault of counterintention from all 400 of us. Meanwhile, we stood motionless like rows of chess players waiting to be knocked over. Miscavige seemed to be blowing off years of pent-up rage and frustration that felt more like contempt. He said, you never do anything right the first time. You can't shoot films. Your hats are all over my plate. You don't support command intention, and you cause nothing but problems in my lines. In other words, I thought to myself, we're just worthless idiots. I wondered how other Cine or Gold staff felt about dedicating their lives to the Sea Org, where nothing was ever done well enough for COB. That we cut ourselves off from the outside world, stayed up without sleep for nights on end to try to make him happy, it just wasn't enough to compensate for our flawed nature and general failure. I wondered how long many of us would stand there and absorb the verbal abuse and generalities as if we truly deserve them. I wondered why I had the nerve to take up oxygen that could have been better used by David Miscavige. (laughs) And I go on to describe more stuff there, but I'm just going to read one last short paragraph. Okay. I thought, wow. Miscavige dramatizes a lot of case on post. This man can't seem to control his emotions. Does he get away with these kinds of dramatizations a lot? For anyone who doesn't know, um, case on post is a Scientology term um, where you let your, you don't control your emotions and your thoughts and you just dramatize whatever comes out without basically exercising control. Yeah. So I noticed that Dave dramatized Case on Post a lot, a lot, and and it's it you know it's letting your mental misemotions spill out onto other people. I would later learn that whenever Miscavige got angry, everybody jumped, went into a frenzy, 
or ran around like chickens without heads to try to resolve the problem so David Miscavige wasn't affected by other people's screw-ups. I would also learn that DM's entourage of communicators and guards would tolerate any emotion he dramatized. Most staff treated him like the sole guardian of righteousness. It was everyone else who had not yet achieved his godlike perfection. Yes. Well, the rest of that, to finish that story, is um, so we were all standing there, and then he was peeling people off. He kicked certain people out of Cine at that day. I remember Brooke Shackleton was one of them. A bunch of people from the shoe crew were one of them. And I was left to go to ethics. And at the time, the uh, gold ethics officer was Kevin Catano. And he took me into gold, into the ethics office. And we were talking about conditions. And I just went into this theedy weedy, I'll do anything bullshit. Um, what do I have to do? Well, you need to do conditions starting with, you know, treason or confusion, whatever. And so I wrote up some conditions and amazingly he let me go home that night. Oh, wow. Big faux pas. <laughs> oh, it was because I blew the next day. Wow. And there's a whole story behind that blow, which I'm not going to tell right now. And I'm going to save that for when you and I possibly begin our next series about being a troublemaker. Yes, that, that that sounds that sounds wonderful. <laughs> and, and by the way, just just as a final my my comment, it it has occurred to me that so you know we talked briefly about how victim is a derogatory term in Scientology or similar to case on post, like any show of emotions, like you know pe people say stop being a victim, you know, um, and it's also very low on the emotional tone scale. Um, 0.1 right above body death. Um, but it occurs to me that even the word below is a word that blames you, the person mm -hmm. for trying to escape. It Good blames point. you because it indicates by nature of the word that you are, um, you're having, you're removing yourself because you've committed transgressions mm -hmm. against mm -hmm. the group. And that's why I always very intentionally now use the word escape because escape, yes, Good it, point. It's, it's just the semantics and the, um, the inferences to me are part of the, the levers and controls of Scientology. That is so well said. And I totally agree with you. And uh, because when you use the word blow, you're you're basically saying, well, now you're doing another thing wrong or that's incorrect. And it doesn't include any sort of um uh I, I was not not justification, but explanation of the circumstances or the context or what all occurred. What are the two sides to the story, not just one? Yes. And um and 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 that is so actually very important. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. That's yeah. a really, really good point. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, about page 191 in my book um, is when I start describing how I escaped the first time. And um, I've talked before that I escaped three times total. This first time was 1990. 
Um, and then the second time was 1993. The final time was 1998. Okay. So yes, I had three escapes. And so when we get into our series, if we decide to do this on troublemakers, uh, okay. So my, the example that I just gave is a great example of how one could get into trouble applying LRH policy in a way that you think you're keeping Scientology working. Yep. It was a very, not innocent motive, uh, but it was innocent in terms of having some weird desire to cause problems. It was more like, hey, I want to see this policy applied because it it matters to me. Right. And, and, at, and at the end of the day, you your perspective was, hey, by studying two and a half hours a day is how you become a better Scientologist and a better member of the C organization. And that's how you do your job better. So why is that a big crime to, to say you want to study Hubbard policy every day as Hubbard says to do? <laughs> you would, you would think <laughs> that's how, that's how inside out the in base was. You would think that you would be praised for right. being, uh, you know, a person that's trying to apply policy and upholding it. Yes. And even completely. taking a risk in doing so. But we'll, let's get into that um, in the next series when we're talking about trouble. Okay. So uh, I was looking forward to telling this Shelly story because we're still doing the Where is Shelly series. And um, <clears throat> I have a story to tell, although I lack certain details. So I'm going to ask you about those details if you know them. <laughs> <laughs> to try to put all these pieces together. Okay. So in, in part two and part one, I talked quite a bit about Shelly Miscavige being my advocate while she's COB assistant. And I gave quite a few examples of how that was for me in my, in my life. So the story that um, I wanted to tell, I'm hoping you're aware of this one. Okay. That this would have been, I believe in the mid to late nineties when we, I ate on the, in, in the MCI, it was an L shaped uh, dining hall and all the crew uh, ate on the left side and the officers, whether you were RTC, CMON, exec strata, whatever, ate on the, on the right side. So it on this side and then it turned Yes. Okay. So I was sitting over there. And the reason that's key is because we're talking about the stewards who attended the tables in the officer section. Okay. Okay. So um, at the time, Peter and I sat in a table that was only, that was maybe two tables away from the round tables where COB, COB assistant, COB communicator, and a lot of other RTC staff ate at the round tables. Is that where you dined as well? Um, I I dined in the crew section uh, in the first, uh, let's see, from 91 until 96. And then, yes, after when I came back to the property, when I was now in Religious Technology Center, then, yes, I, I dined in the officer section until uh, we weren't allowed to go there anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know about that. Um, yeah, that came so you'll, later. You'll have, you'll have to tell that story. Yes. Okay, so the reason it's key, the logistics of the dining hall, is because I'm hoping that you remember who the stewards were. 
because there was a steward who took care of uh, COB and COB assistant and uh, Loris and a few other people. I think there were about six or eight people at a table. And this steward, she had medium brown hair, a little bit curly, kind of shoulder length. And she was kind of young. I'd say early, she was 20s, early 30s at the most. And we all found out that that steward had gone out to D. Yes. Tammy. Tammy is her name. Tammy. That's right. Tammy. uh, She, I can't remember her maiden name, but she was Tammy Thomas. She married Cliff Thomas, who we knew as Skeeter. Oh my gosh. Really? I love Skeeter. Yeah. Uh, God, I haven't thought of him in so many years. Uh, Okay. So here's the story we heard. We heard that Tammy had gone out too deep, but I, and what that means to anybody who doesn't know in the Sea Org, um, you're, you're not allowed to have sex outside of marriage or until marriage. So if you're single, you're out of luck until you finally get married or that's yes. supposed to be how the way it goes. Yes. But there's, a no, lot there's, people, there's no test driving as Mark likes to put it. No, no <laughs> test driving. <laughs> so, um, well, Tammy took a test drive um, and I'm not sure who it was with. I'm, I don't know if it was Skeeter. Um, I don't think so. But, no. There, so there was, um, I think if this is the same time period, um, and I don't want to speak out of turn out on behalf of Tammy, but there was a whole situation uncovered of quite extensive uh, mis- uh, sexual misbehavior in the galley staff, which included, but was not limited to, Tammy Thomas, Andy Davitt, uh, Vivian Lynn, um, Panuccio Tizi. Those were the the key players, as I, as I recall it. Panuccio. I remember Panuccio. He made yes. great food. He was the pastry <laughs> chef. He made incredible food. Oh my God, Panuccio. What would we have done without Panuccio? But, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So the story that I heard is that was specifically about her. And I didn't know that this was kind of rampant in the galley staff, but she was a galley crew member and and I should note that galley staff were never brought up to the base to be posted in the galley unless you were something like a five-star chef or whatever, like our main chef was. If you landed in the galley, it's because typically you got demoted from some other post and being made to work in the galley was a representation of how you were thought of, I guess. Yes. Um, okay. It was punishment and humiliation punishment and intended. humiliation. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know, I don't know any of Tammy's background prior to that, but okay, but she was COB and COB assistant steward. She served them plates of food and everything else t- coffee, tea, desserts, cleared the table, you name it. So she, we heard that she had gone out too deep. But the significance of this was we, we were told that she went and had sex like regularly with somebody there out by the dumpsters out, you know how the garage comes off the, came off the back of the galley and there were these big dumpsters back there. Yes. Uh, And then 
anyway, we were told that she went out there with someone and had sex out there behind the dumpsters so that nobody else could see. Wow. Okay. So Tammy, I'm so sorry if you're out now, I, I, I'm not telling this story to demean you or diminish your name or reputation anyway. That's not the point of the story. Okay. The point of the story is because Tammy was in a, a screwed up situation. I mean, you weren't allowed to test drive. She was working in the galley, long hours, grueling work that was miserable conditions in the hot kitchen. And that was the essence of her life. Right. Okay. So she was trying to have a relationship with someone and evidently they cared about each other and they had sex. Okay. Um, But in our culture to do that was the worst thing that you could do because it's like an automatic send to the prison camp. If you have sexual misbehavior like that, you get assigned to the RPF. Yep. Okay. Well, here's where Shelly as an advocate comes in because my understanding was that Shelly pardoned her, pardoned Tammy and Tammy was not sent to the RPF, Hmm. even though she went out to D because Tammy had otherwise a very good reputation as being in ethics, um, an upstep producer, She always did a great job as their steward and they had no complaints. Um, As a matter of fact, I think she might've even been an officer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think she had gotten promoted because she was doing such a good job. So I'm telling this story because it relates to when Shelly was an advocate to me when I had gotten in trouble and how she gave me a second chance. And that, just literally turned my life around. And I was told that she pardoned Tammy. Wow. And Tammy did not go to the RPF. I don't know what did happen to her in terms of discipline. I'm sure she was made to do conditions at least. But so I wanted to ask you if you knew anything more about that, about Shelly basically um, waiving an RPF assignment but I heard that Shelly came to her defense. Yeah. I, I was told that Shelly was the one that said, no, we're not, we're not sending you to the RPF. Yeah. Uh, I wondered if you knew anything about this. Was she an advocate for Tammy? She, yes, she absolutely was. Um, though I will say that it's probably shortly thereafter that um, David Miscavige and Shelly stopped eating in that mess hall altogether. And then they, they got stewards of their own brought into religious technology center, which was Emily Jones, um, Valerie Haney, um, and you know, a few different people that served, but it was directly within religious technology center thereafter. But interestingly, I, I thought you should know that earlier in the series, when I was interviewing Jackson, Gary Moorhead, I found out he walked in on Dave, David Miscavige and Shelly Miscavige uh, doing a test drive prior to their marriage. So even so in that context, it's also no surprise that Shelly would be willing to forgive Tammy. <laughs> wow. I never heard that story. <laughs> yes. God. So Jackson was a security guard 
many no. years. Yeah, no. And so what? this was when he was in um, the messenger organization in LA, well before he even arrived. So this was in, in LA where this happened. He walked into the men's dorm and um, Shelly and Dave were on the bed and he was like, oh, and and again, this was oh, before. I love it. Yeah, this was like in the early <laughs> '80s before they were married. <laughs> oh, I love it! Oh my god, saved from hypocrisy at this moment. Then, yeah, because if they if they had sent her to the RPF, that'd be pretty hypocritical, wouldn't it? Yes, completely. It, and it's done not the same themselves. Yeah, and it's not the only time that actually Dave and Shelley both have for have forgiven people. But yes, there were many other instances where Shelley came to somebody's defense and she had even um taken people off the rehabilitation project force, like she did that with John Brousseau. Um, he was on the rehabilitation project force, and I and I had to go, you know, get him brought back, dusted off, and put back into religious technology center, which was for the most part unheard of. Like you wouldn't fall into that much disgrace that you're sent to the rehabilitation project force and ever go back to religious sure. technology center. Yeah. yeah. Well, wasn't JB, um, he was married to Shelley's sister. Yes. Clarice. Clarice. So he was a brother-in-law. Yes. Very interesting because that's one of the questions that I had I might as well ask you now. Um, one of the questions on my list for you was uh, the Miscavige family was pretty considerable on the base at the time when Ronnie was um, marketing executive. Yes. Right? Dave, um, David Miscavige's David's brother. Yes. Brother. Of course, his father, Ron Sr., was a gold musician. And then Shelly had uh, her sister, Clarice, and Clarice's husband, John, JB. So that's at least five family members. I don't know if there were even more. There were more. There was... Um, and of course, Jenna. Time, yes, Jenna. And Jenna. then there was also Suzette um, Barnett, who then married Sterling. Um, so Suzette Tompkins, uh, who was Shelly's half-sister. Oh, I didn't know she was Shelley's half sister. Okay. Yep. And she married Sterling, who was Biddy's uh, Biddy's Biddy and Ronnie's son. son. And, yep. And and um So and Biddy Biddy was as well. I didn't mention that was Ronnie's wife. Right. So they had a considerable size of a family at, at one time there. Yeah, which these. and uh, which is funny you bring that up because I remember I I think it was I'm honestly not sure if the sort if the origination point of this was David Miscavige or Shelley Miscavige. I mm. I heard it from Shelley, but I it, I would imagine it came from David Miscavige accusing um, Biddy of nepotism in relation to Jenna uh, when Jenna was very very young. Like this was. Uh, and and it's kind of funny because I had to I actually remember looking up the word nepotism in the dictionary because I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> well, explain it now because there's probably people who don't. Yeah. Know. So um, preferential treatment of family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that was the question I was going to ask you, um, because being able to observe Shelley as you did with 
so many family members between um, Shelley's side with Barnett's who were married to Brousseau's uh, and then the Miscavige side was the largest group, right? Yes. With, with, uh, with uh, in-laws. Yeah. Oh, and don't forget Ron, Ron senior's wife too, Becky. Of course, Becky. Yes. Yeah. Ron Miscavige and Becky Miscavige and Peter and I were roommates. Oh, wow. And (laughs) I, in my book, Escaping Scientology, I have an entire chapter about being roommates with Ron and Becky Miscavige. Wow. That's a whole other series of stories. Um, Oh, boy, that brings up a lot of memories. But so nepotism. So my question to you was all this family there. And I want to bring up um, the fact that since then, I think every single family member of David Shelley peeled out and is no longer in the Sea Org. I mean, that was the largest family group on the base, to my knowledge. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. All peeled out. Yeah, well, um, Ron Ron escaped, Ron escaped and passed away. Ron and Becky, Ron and Becky escaped. Ronnie and Biddy escaped. Jenna, who was out at the ranch and was abused as a child, she escaped. Um, Of course, JB escaped. Did CB escape or did she remain? No. As far as I know, Clarice, Shelley's sister, is the only one still there. Wow. Yeah. And there was also Justin, Justin Miscavige, uh, Sterling and Jenna's brother. Okay. I didn't know of him. Yep. So my question was, did you observe Shelley? um, Like, was she, did she carry out like familial relationships with, with this clan? Because it was a pretty big clan. And I wanted to know that because, you know, with how everybody was so separated and of course, you know, parents were not allowed to have children at the base. And so they were shunted like Jenna was to the ranch. Um, and I don't know about the others. Um, yeah, no, there- uh, yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and in my observation, especially in later years, it got more and more and more strained. Um, so for example, I can remember um, Shelly um, trying to play the mentor role for Jenna uh, when Jenna was younger. But mm. then um, when p- particularly when Jenna, um, well, that's a whole other story. I I had to actually, I'm, I'm the one that uh, in 1996, I think, so I'm, so I was 21 and I'm not sure how many years older than I, than Jenna that, than I am, but she must've been around 13 or 14. And this was at the time when, um, it had been just uncovered that, um, Biddy had been test driving with Don Jason and she was sent to the rehabilitation project force. And, you know, and, 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 
again, whole other topic, but Biddy was- Was that sent- true? Was that true or was that a rumor? No, that was true. But Biddy okay. had been sent to Clearwater and she'd been there for years separated yeah. from Ronnie. From Ronnie. You know, I'm yeah. not, I'm not, again, it's none of my business. As we say mm-hmm. here in Colorado, Nanya. <laughs> none your business. <laughs> it's not my business. And, you know, yeah. like you said, and- the, the miserable lives we lived, whatever way you somehow- weaseled out a little bit of joy that's your thing is exactly not my business and yeah. this is not meant to pass judgment whatsoever no. no it's just to connect the dots to yes. make sense of what happened yeah and to be fair i've never talked with biddy about this so i don't actually know is the is the fact of the matter um and and I, I will be interviewing Biddy as well for my Where is Shelley series, I hope. <laughs> so that's coming oh, up. Oh, wow. That would yeah. be incredible. Yeah. But my point being back to the story that Shelley told me that I had to be the one to tell Jenna and then escort Jenna from Clearwater back to the base so that Jenna could be told that her mother had been sent to the Rehabilitation Project Force. And, um, and Jenna is an amazing person. She was always a force of nature to me in the, in the C organization. Like, I don't think she remembers this. And I, and again, I don't know that it's true, but I remember hearing a story, for example, that when she was like seven or eight, she went to the examiner and, um, you know how that, how that goes, you sit down, you pick up the cans, the examiner looks and observes your, ne- your needle on the e-meter and then looks at you and reads your body language and your, are you smiling? Are you crying? Are you happy? You're sad. You're supposed to be very good indicators and your needle is floating. And the examiner will then look at you and say, thank you. Your needle is floating. Well, the story I heard, and again, I'll have to talk <laughs> with Jenna about this is that Jenna went to the examiner, picked up the cans, and uh, the examiner said, thank you, your needle is floating. And Jenna said, no, it's not, you beat. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, my God. Just amazing. And she was like... Um, uh, you know, as I, as I heard it anyway, but she was like seven or eight years old. I'm like, wow, wow. <laughs> nobody does that anyway. Well, but, but yeah, she's so a force of nature, like you said, wouldn't it be great yeah. for you to interview Jenna yes. uh, about Shelly or about yeah. anything, but oh my God. Yeah. I already have that, that in the works. Incredible. I hope so. But yeah, so I was the one that had to tell Jenna, Hey, I'm, I'm going to take you I'm going to come with you back to the, back to the headquarters. And, and it's funny. Cause again, I, j- I remember, I remember where we were standing. I remember the day I remember the time. And cause I was, I had to make, I had to gain her cooperation. Um, but I was not allowed to tell her why we were going back. I was not oh. allowed to tell her that. Wow. And so I had kind of run through in my head like, what would I say? Cause I knew she was going to ask, she's no dummy. And I don't, I'm not going to treat her like a dummy either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm certainly not going to, you know, I knew it, the way you work with people is you work with them. You don't boss them around like it, you know, treat them like, Oh, you're going to do what I say. I'm the boss. Exactly. Man. Like they're a minion or something. Right. 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 And, and of course, so I tell Jenna this and the first thing I think she said was she either asked if her mom had engaged in uh you know the test test driving 
or she asked if she'd been sent to the rehabilitation project force. I honestly can't quite remember, but either way, the both answers were yes. And I had to figure out how to not answer that question. And I said, you know what, we're going to find out everything when we get there, but I'm coming with you. It's going to be okay. I'm going to do whatever I can to make it okay. And, uh, and, and, uh, anyway, <laughs> so, wow. so she cooperated with me and we flew together from Clearwater to, to the, back to the headquarters. And this was, um, gosh, I want to say this was like in October, 2006. So I'd already not seen Mark mm. at this point in six months or so. So I was thrilled. I was like, I get to go back to the base, even for a day or two. And yeah. see my husband, I mean, your I, husband. I, oh my God. <laughs> wow. I had a vested interest in making this work well. And that wasn't necessarily, I mean, you know, anyway, <laughs> just <You're> crazy, right. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so Shelly was always, was very involved, particularly with Jenna, um, much less so like she, she tended to have disdain for the other family members who were, who weren't holding up to her standard. So mm. I definitely remember that in relation to Shelly's attitude, body language and behavior towards Becky Miscavige, for example. Who Becky was at the time, of course, married to Ron. So technically Becky was Shelly's mother-in-law. Right. And um, Becky was working in, in the marketing division. I don't remember her specific post uh, at all. I knew she was in marketing, but that's it. Yeah. And I know absolutely now, now you're bringing back memories that that disdain that Shelly expressed towards Becky absolutely came from David Miscavige. I mean, I heard him refer to Becky as a blonde, you know, B, B word. I'm not even going to repeat it because it's just derogatory and disgusting, frankly. And that was not uncommon, but um, yeah, no, there was, there was not, if anything, I think that Shelly was um, harder on her family and on Rowan Horwich, by the way, mm. Elmore Hubbard's granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can imagine. Uh, well, it's interesting to talk about Ron and Becky because of course, Ron was, uh, Dave's father, Shelly's father-in-law, which made Becky Dave's stepmother and Shelly's yep. mother-in-law. That's right. And yet um, there were probably 20 to 30 years between Becky and Ron. Yes. And so Becky would have been more of a peer in terms of, uh, you know, uh, working relationships. Yes. But there was this odd familial relationship there. And I always wondered the dynamics of all of that and how they managed it. Um, They, they didn't manage it. There may be, there may have been sometimes in the early years when Ron and Becky would go into, uh, you know, the officer's lounge in Massacre Canyon in to talk to Dave, but, but I can tell you that even even that became very, very strained in approximately 1998, for example, when I was a mm. correction type person in Religious Technology Center. Mm-hmm. Shelly had me doing um, uh, <laughs> handlings on Ron Sr. to help him better communicate with David Miscavige, his father. Interesting. Yeah. 
Oh, I could have, I could tell a lot of stories about that. Um, because Peter and I lived with Ron and Becky in the Devonshire apartments for at least a year, I, I think, possibly a little bit longer. But um, in my book, I have a whole chapter on Ron. And many, I, I remembered many of the things that he would discuss with me because we were roommates. I could say that that was the one place where you could make friends is if you lived off base in an apartment with your roommates. That's because, true. You're right. Because then you were not on post and you were on your own time. Of course, this is sleep time, which was few and far between, you know, what, between midnight and 7 a.m. when you were supposed to be sleeping. So if you hang out in the kitchen and talk for whatever, you're robbing yourself of sleep. So, uh, but Ron shared with me quite a few things about Dave that I re- I remembered and I put it in my book. So I won't bring that up now, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll have to talk about that for another, another time. Another yes. Sorry. Um, so I, I have only one more question. I, I know we're getting close to the end of our time, right? Yes, we are. <laughs> okay. So um, you're, you're getting good at this, Karen. We yeah. need you to start your channel. <laughs> Just at least think about it. And if not, then we'll, we'll figure out a, a new series. And, okay. and, and yes, to everybody, again, reiterate, if you'd like to see a series from Karen and I, please comment and give us your input on what you, you know, any thoughts you might have. But yes, go ahead with your question. Thank you for saying that. And and I also want to thank everybody who has commented on it already. Uh, I I take every one of those comments to heart and I'm really considering it. And I appreciate so much uh, everything that people have said um, about what they want to hear more about. So we were talking about um, in our previous conversation of how Shelly was disappeared by Dave. And this occurred after I left. I left in 98. Um, You left in 2005. Yep. Okay. Shelly was disappeared what year? Um, As to the closest I can um, pin it down, it was approximately six months after After. I escaped. Okay. Because one of of your viewers um, left a comment, uh, actually left a question and said, how do we know that Shelly was taken away in a car? Like if, if you weren't there, like where did you get this information from? And so I wondered, um, uh, I, I heard this from Mike Rinder who relayed a description of uh, Shelly's disappearance. Um, I, I trust Mike and I believe that he would tell the story as accurately as he could possibly remember according to the details that he had. Yes. So um, is that how you remember it? Mike, we, Mike described that a car came and Shelly was escorted to the car and driven away and no one has seen her since. Yes. Um, some of the pieces of information that I know about, about what happened um, is from various different people. So for example, John Brousseau was there at the time as was Tom DeVocht mm. and Valerie Haney. And okay. so I, I don't, um, and so I'm, you know, uh, as many of those people that will participate in this series, I will include that. And that will probably help figure out the, 
the pieces of the puzzle that we're about to talk about and, mm-hmm. and where they came from exactly. But I know that all those three people and Mike was there as well. Um, so, so that's four people actually now that um, have gotten out of Scientology and have shared different pieces of information. Um, it's my understanding that there were two elements as to what um, drove Shelley into extreme disfavor with David Miscavige, or at least they were the final straws. Number one was that she she moved the management executives and put them up into the RTC building, the Religious Technology Center building, which was a $40 million building built on the far north, let's see, yeah, the north side of the property. Um, And there had been discussion for years, by the way, going back and forth, that RTC shouldn't be so big and shouldn't have such complete control. Um, and so why did we build the, why did he build this $40 million building? And in fact, Larice Stukenbrock would often call me when I was, you know, internal executive number three and say, uh, she'd be in a meeting down with David Miscavige and she'd say, what was the exact cost of that building? So it was 39 million and change was the exact figure that I would always have to give her. But there was discussion going back and forth of having management buy that building from Religious Technology Center and then mm-hmm. making that in uh, management because, again, David Miscavige was maneuvering uh, legal cases and trying not to be the guy, even though he is the guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but for appearance purposes, he didn't want to be seen that way. And obviously the (laughs) the richest, biggest building on the property is, you know, that's the palace, right? That's the king. It's not somebody else. (laughs) Talk about shooting foot bullets. Oh my God. You go ahead and build yourself a 40,000 square foot building for RTC and then say you're not involved. Right. (laughs) And, And I say all that about the building because it's not like this was Shelley's idea out of left field. Mm-hmm. It had been talked about many, many times. I, she, I never heard that, that yeah. she moved some, she, she planned to move some of the management execs into that building. So the exact sequence of events, again, as close as I can pin it down. And again, this, that's the whole, uh, one of my goals for this series is to pin down the exact dates and sequence of events. Mm-hmm. But Shelly came back from the maiden voyage event, which is in June, 2005 early, um, to get some of David Miscavige's orders done. And she went ahead and um, moved management and put them on post and did all that, moved them into David Miscavige's building. So that was, oh. that was massive number one. And then number two, and, and again, I'll, we're going through these facts to pin it all down. But my understanding too, is that another major element is that Shelley did not approve of the close, very close relationship. Uh, David Miscavige was building with Tom Cruise. Cruise. Yeah. And I think that um, David Miscavige had even started to get an apartment built for Tom Cruise in El Cid is what it was called the building behind author services, Inc. Mm -hmm. um, Where David Miscavige had quarters and Shelley did not approve. So those are the two elements that Mm -hmm. I understand. And, and, and particularly in regards to the, 
the first element where she moved everyone into the religious technology center building. What I'm told is that he came back through a complete fit and blew off, you know, ran off in a huff, uh, drove off with Larice to Los Angeles and told Shelly, yeah, and told <laughs> Shelly that she needed to get her butt handled, basically, like get yourself in for interrogation as to why you're violating my orders. So Shelly did that with Antonella Tizi, who is with her to this day as her handler, one of her mm. three three handlers. Mm. Um, and then mm. when Shelly got out from that, she went to Los Angeles to go uh, fix things with Dave, and he accused her of escaping. And so therefore now she, she had blown and was disobeying his orders. And it's my, because she left the base to go down to see him. Yes. Wow. I had never heard this before. Yeah. So it was kind of the, the final, like, ah, gotcha. Now you've tried to blow, you tried to escape and now you're boom, you're banished. And, but yes, she was put in a car and, and then there's, uh, and, driven away and was then there in the car there in LA or was it when no. she got back to the base? Okay. So when she got back to the base. Okay. Um and she was sent to um CST, the the running springs secure compound. And again, you kind of get you go, okay, I get it. So he was trying to keep her contained and she wasn't contained at the base because she had she was number two and everyone looked up to her and she had complete power and authority. So security would say, yes, sir, and open the gate and let her go to LA. Mm -hmm. So he put her somewhere where she did not have that power, where she could be contained and could be held and, you know, could mm -hmm. be under his complete control. Wow. I didn't know a lot of the things that you just told. So boy, that really connects a lot of dots for me. Which raises one of the questions, Antonella Tizi, who was an RTC uh, staff member, what was her post at the time? Uh, most likely she was the enhancement sec, uh, okay. or, you know, she's essentially over staff training and staff counseling. I thought so. So she was, yeah. uh, so she would have taken Shelly into session or sec check or whatever. Um, does anybody know if Antonella? Since Antonella accompanied her to CST, or we believe that's where they are, um, does anybody know if Antonella is still there and able to be reached? So to my knowledge, she is still there, uh, as of last we knew anyway, um, but not able to be reached. I'm just thinking, you know, that kind of opens the possibility of another way of tracking down right whether Shelly is still there a b is she alive uh and if Antonella's there then wow I mean someone could do a welfare check on Antonella right or yeah you're or, right because Antonella is definitely uh she's a must be in her mid to late sixties by now, at least. I mean, yeah. her, she has ha, has a son, Fed TZ, who is also was in Golden Era Productions. Mm -hmm. He probably works in LA now at SMP Scientology mm -hmm. Media Productions. Would be mm -hmm. my guess. Yeah. Wow, very interesting. But that could be a new path to maybe dig up some information. Yes, very definitely. More information about Shelley. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you one more question. It depends on 
if you're okay with a few more minutes of talk, it's, I know we've been uh, an hour and 34 minutes. Sure. Let's do one more question and one then we'll question. wrap it up for today. <laughs> so, okay. This, this relates to what we're talking about with uh, Dave disappearing Shelly. What I wanted to ask was while you were in RTC, which was quite a few years, are you aware of any RTC staff or any other gold staff that you know of or anyone from the UPS that Dave disappeared? Because I know that people have been banished. Yes. Yes. I, no, absolutely. Pl many. many. Um, I mean, yeah. And specifically from Religious Technology Center, the most prominent examples that come to mind is um, Angie Trent and Ricky Jensen, Ricky Galbiati. And the reason for those two being significant is for two reasons. Number one, they were both, they both worked in Religious Technology Center in Clearwater, Florida, and were intimately involved in the tragic and wrongful death of Lisa McPherson. Um, they were both personally overseeing the steps that were being taken in regards to Lisa McPherson that resulted in her death in the Fort Harrison Hotel. Wow. Yeah. And so and um, they're aware of all the details, the case files, the details within the case files, the probably the legal aspects, the ethics aspects. Yes. That that Dave was running. Yes. And so um they were first brought back to the um the gold base where religious technology center was. So in other words, they were removed from Clearwater, Florida. While the criminal case was ongoing, they were kept in Religious Technology Center uh, while it was ongoing, and um, because that way they were under complete control. And then, when David Miscavige manipulated and managed to get it, um, whatever it was, I think it, I, I don't know what the final correct legal verbiage for the outcome of that was. Mm -hmm. But once that was over, um, Ricky was sent to Australia. Now, is and, that where she was from? No. Nope. Just, she was from, um, I think she's from Denmark, if I'm not mistaken. Now, was yeah. Ricky, had Ricky formerly been uh, an MAA, an ethics officer in RTC? Uh, she was an RTC representative for as long as I was in RTC. So right. that's, the, that's the post that I knew that she had. Um, and what about Angie? Was Angie ended up in the galley. But I mean, had Angie, uh, prior to that, becoming an RTC rep or whatever, what was she doing in RTC? Oh, I, I don't know, actually. And, and again, I think she was an RTC rep as long as I knew her. I only ever knew her as that. But she was OT8 and at least class nine, probably hmm. maybe class 12. Um, but she'd been, she was staff at flag before she was promoted to religious technology center. So she got, well, she was sent out of flag, but she was sent back to the base and put in the galley. Right. Okay. So do you know of any other people that were disappeared? I, I'm particularly thinking of, there was a, a, a girl, well, a young woman in RTC, I believe she had been an MAA of some sort and she was there one day and the next day she was gone. And Oh, I, I'm willing to, to bet you're thinking of Jasmine Fiondica. 
Okay. Was she disappeared? She she escaped with she escaped. her with her husband Sam. They were both in Religious Technology Center and they escaped. And that was in mm, 1995, 1996. That sounds about right. It happened. Uh, about two years or so before I left. I yeah. just remember whoever that was, I liked her and um, I noticed she was suddenly gone, but yeah. okay. So she escaped. She was not disappeared. Um, so what I'm asking is um, was disappearing people a way that Dave treated certain staff who posed a risk to him? Yes, very definitely. There were two main factors as to when David Miscavige would disappear someone. Number one was to get them outside of jurisdictions for, for legal purposes so that they couldn't be served. And number two, and sometimes it was one and two, was when a person had fallen into such complete disfavor of David Miscavige that he never, ever wanted to see them again. Those were the two circumstances. And sometimes, you know, they were both present. Wow. Um, can you think of anyone else who, can you think of any people that were sent away like that? Oh my gosh. I mean, there were many people sent to the the rehabilitation project force in Australia, like uh, Kip mm. Engen, I want to say, um, Nikki Cifarelli, maybe even Tony Cifarelli. I can't, you know. Um, and then another example is that after Mark and I escaped, um, Mark's sister, Stephanie was sent to Canada. Wow. Yeah. So she was basically banished from the base and sent to Canada. Yeah. Because obviously if David Miscavige would see her, he would instantly be reminded of Mark and God forbid that could happen because, you know, Mark was already posting by that time as blown for good. And uh, David Miscavige was not liking what Mark had to say about. (laughs) (laughs) Mark was so brilliant. What a coup that he pulled off. That was incredible. I remember his sister, Stephanie. I really liked her. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking Pascal Julien was disappeared. Uh, He had been an income and he was banished to Canada if I remember correctly. Uh, and Karen Priori's husband, uh, and I can't think of his name. Ivano, Ivano Priori. Oh my God, she loved him so much. And COB sent him to another country. Just yeah. rip, rip that marriage apart. Yep. Why did he get sent away? Yeah. I don't know. Do you know why Ivano I don't. Was- yeah, I don't remember why, but David Miscavige always would develop these theories too about people that they were out to get him, and um, and he would disappear people just for that. Like Chris Beanie was one example of that. Um, Kevin Poston was another example of that. The security mm-hmm. guard. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my gosh, uh, uh, Norm Newton was another example of that. Like. Uh, David Miscavige just had this, you know, this uh, conspiracy theory that Norm Newton was trying to be- take over from him, David Miscavige, which everybody at that property was so cowed. Nobody was in a position to pull something like that off. Nobody. Right. Yeah. Well, I remember um, 
Karen Priority because she was in Cine and she was so in love with Ivano. And I just feel like it was such an act of cruelty for him to banish Ivano when they had just recently been married. And it's as if he couldn't stand to see that type of love right. occur in a marriage where two people genuinely loved each other. Yep. He had he had to ruin it. Yep. He had You're to, absolutely right. He had to ruin it. And so banishing became part of his solutions. And where in LRH Tech can he find any policy to support what he did? Right. Yep. None. <laughs> Except for the fact that Hubbard pretty much did that to Mary Sue when she was. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, of course. Found guilty in prison um, after his team um, pulled off the biggest. Um, uh, infiltration of infiltration U.S. government in its of history. Of U.S. government in its history. So Hubbard set the example. He washed his hands of Mary Sue while she spent the next decade of her life in prison. Yep. With with handlers in complete isolation until the day she died. And that is what Shelly is enduring right now. So, well, who knows? Maybe everything, everything that everyone's doing to try to connect the dots will at some point make a difference. Yes, um, very definitely. So that we can understand it. So, well, anyway, thank you again, Claire, for having me today. And we've left a lot of topics open so that, you know, I think we'll be putting our heads together to figure out what to do next. We definitely will. As always, a complete pleasure chatting with you, Karen. I I love our interactions and we'll look forward to more. (laughs) I love them too. And um, thank you everyone who leaves comments. I, I definitely read every single one and I appreciate them. Awesome. And don't forget to like and subscribe and stay tuned for more coming soon. And a lot of people have told me they've been ordering my book. So I really appreciate that very much. Appreciate the support. Yes. We'll include the link again in this, in the description for this video as well. And Karen, I'll see you soon. Sending love as always. Thank you so much for your time. Love you back, Claire. All righty. Bye. Bye.